Well, this week, obviously, has been a different week. It's been marked by a couple different things. Uh, We've had fires, and we've had high winds, and there's probably other things that are going on uh, within our own families and within our our relationships with others and the areas that we live. And so, uh, power outages go with that, and so some have been displaced, others haven't, but hopefully everybody is kind of back home. But with everything going on and with the busyness of everything, the question that we asked this morning really is one of that last song that we sang. Have we taken the time and have we actually allowed our souls to be still before the Lord? It's easy when things are going on around us and there's a lot of upset of of the the norm that we live in for us to, to lose the stillness of our soul before the Lord, to walk in the confidence of our own strength and to lose His peace in our life, the peace that He's desperately provided through Jesus that He wants us to lean on and to rest in and to trust in. Well, this morning, we're going to move forward in our, our series in 1 Samuel, and As we look at that series, as we look at this passage, we've been going over the last few in chapter 24 and chapter 25, what we've seen is this kind of interlude. It's a story within a story in essence. And so verse chapters 24 through today, 26, in this kind of three chapter look at how we actually deal with our enemies. And so we saw a few weeks ago how to love our enemies as David loved Saul well. If you recall, he had gone into this cave where Saul was relieving himself and he cuts the corner off of Saul's robe. And then he remembers God's word to him that he's not to put his hand against God's anointed. And what we see is this this demonstration of David loving his enemies the way that God loved us when we were hostile to him, apart from him. In the same way, we saw in chapter 25, this shift with David, where David has come in and he now is facing Nabal. David had gone and protected the sheep of Nabal and protected his shepherds in the valley, and Nabal will not even remotely give him any food or his men any food. And it stirs up an anger in David, an unrighteous anger. And David is heading out to kill Nabal and his household. And what we see is we see Abigail step in as a peacemaker. That God has called us in our lives to not only love our enemies, but to also be peacemakers. To be those who intercede on the behalf of others. And what we see in that as well was that Jesus himself interceded on our behalf in the same way. That when we were sinful and hostile to God, that Jesus came before the Father and presented his life as the ransom for our sin. Laying down his life so that we might have life in him interceding on our behalf. truly demonstrating what it meant to be a peacemaker. Well, this morning what we're going to see a picture of is this final step, this final piece of this interlude, this short little story within a story. And we're going to see what it really means to have faith in God's sovereignty. As David demonstrates faith in God's sovereignty... Over the past few weeks, my hope is that we've been able to rest in the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of the unknown, that His sovereignty might be a place of shelter for us, that it might be a place of comfort, and it might be a place of confidence, that the Lord is at work, His hand is at work, and He is still working out His purposes for good for his people. So let's go ahead and read this together. We're going to be reading 1 Samuel 26. 
We're going to go verses 1 through 25, so let's go ahead and stand as we read this this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road of the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Nur, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Elimelech the Hittite and Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner, the army, lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given you enemy, given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called the army and to Abner the son of Nur, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. It is the Lord who is, excuse me, if it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, May he accept an offering, but if it is men, may, he be cur- may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out of this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be to you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this picture of David, this 
the story, this truth of David standing in the presence of his enemy. Lord, we're grateful for this story of a man who rests and trusts in your sovereignty. Lord, this morning, may we walk out emboldened in our faith in you and in your sovereign work. May we have confidence that you are at work and that you are working because of who you are, because you are Lord over all. And may you truly be the king of our lives this morning. Father, for those that may not know you this morning, may they encounter you in a personal way. May your majesty as king not be ignored. May you be seen clearly and may their eyes and each of our eyes be open fully to your truth. Father, I pray that you bring forth your word in power. That your word would come in a way that God opens our hearts to you. Encouraging, challenging, rebuking where needed. And Father, may we walk away empowered in your spirit this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Central to this passage is the idea that faith in God's sovereignty emboldens us to live righteously in the blessing of His salvation. Faith in God's sovereignty emboldens us to live righteously in the blessing of His salvation. So this faith that God is having or desiring us to walk in is so that we might experience the blessing of His salvation but it is as we have faith in the sovereignty of God that we are emboldened to live righteously in his salvation. And so I want to encourage you on your notes this morning to circle that word, emboldens. The truth is, apart from the sovereignty of God, we will not be emboldened to actually live out our faith righteously. It is knowing who God is and knowing what God is doing that emboldens us in our faith. Both his nature, who God is, and his character are the very essence of the confidence of our faith. And so David actually gives us a picture of what it means to have faith in God's sovereignty. And what we're going to see is that when we have faith in God's sovereignty, we are able to live out Christ's salvation well, regardless of what's coming against us. And so if you notice here, in verse 1, it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now that may seem like a fairly benign piece of information. But what's important here is the Ziphites, these are the same guys that in chapter 3 sold out David before. So the same people that are after David are after him still. The same people that are wanting to actually support Saul are still supporting Saul. Nothing's changed. And so David is still dealing with this. He goes into the land of Ziph knowing full well that these people may not love him, may not like him, may prefer Saul to him, and he goes anyway. And what do the Ziphites do? The Ziphites do what they've already done. They run out to Saul and say, hey, Saul, just want to let you know David's here again. Now, what we don't see here is David run away. What we do see is Saul actually begins to pursue David. Now, what's unique about this is Saul leaves, leaves where he's at, and he comes into the land or the wilderness of Ziph, 
and he brings 3,000 chosen men. Now, if you think about that for a minute, what we learned in chapter 25 is that when David was going after Nabal, David really had about 600 men with him. That's it. In fact, when he went to Nabal, it said that he chose 400 of them. So think about this for a minute. Saul's army, 3,000 chosen men amongst the thousands. David, 600 men. He's got 400 of which he's chosen. Very different. The odds are stacked against him. Right? I mean, if we looked at that today in our world setting, we'd think there's no way that this will ever happen. No way. Can't be done. The army of Saul is too powerful for the army of David. Well, Saul goes into the land of Ziph, it says, and he brings these 3,000 chosen men with him. Now notice that Saul gets into the land and rather than just pursuing David, he decides to rest. We're not told why he decides to rest, but he decides to rest nonetheless. They come into town, they take up encampment along the hill, and it says that Saul as he camped, was surrounded by his army. Verse 5 says, And David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. He had sent out spies. He's watching. He's looking. It actually reminds us of Caleb. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and they looked at the land, and Caleb was the one who said, Yes, it's ours to take, and the rest rebelled. David goes to the camp. He sends out spies first. He looks, and what he finds is that Saul is lying with his army encamped around him. Abner, his commander, lying near him. And he, in his sleep, in his rest, is seemingly completely safe. Remember those times when you were growing up when things were kind of scary in your own home? Ever have a time where you heard weird noises in your house, kind of funky things or funny shadows on the wall? If you could just get under the covers, it was enough, wasn't it? At least for a little bit. As long as you couldn't see it and you felt like they couldn't see you, you were nothing more than a moose hiding behind a tree, right? You were okay, right? This is kind of... Saul here, except Saul actually believes that his army is big enough. And in our world, we face these kinds of things every day. We see circumstances that seem too large to be overcome. Saul himself is surrounded by the army. He's surrounded by, uh, by Abner, who is his commander. He's got his people. He is safe and secure. And what God's showing him is, listen, your army is nothing more than a nice blanket on an interesting day when you're a little bit scared. Because God's plan is different than ours. And what we begin to see is that David then begins to move towards Saul. And it says in verse 6, Then David said to Elimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? Now notice, most of us would be like, uh, that's not happening. There are 3,000 chosen men. I don't want to go there. This is certain death. But there is a confidence that David has. And it says here, and Abishah said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishah went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Here's what it's saying. Saul was ready for war, except he was sleeping. Abner was ready for war, except he was sleeping. And notice what Abishai's response is. Just like David's friends before, 
Abishai says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Listen, just give me one good shot, and I'll take him out. God's handed him into your hands, right? That's what he's saying. I'm not going to miss. This guy's surely mine. I can knock him out. Our problem goes away. It's all good. Now, some of us, we may have been that friend to others, and others of us might have had friends like that, where we're the ones that are going, listen, go for it. Take it out. Justice is the right thing, right? Sometimes God may lead in a direction of this, but David was instructed not to touch God's anointed. And so what does David do here? It says, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Right away. Right away, rather than David looking at he can solve his problem now, he goes straight to God and says, listen, who can do this without being guilty before the Lord? Immediately, David begins to trust in the sovereignty of God. And listen what he says. He says this. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What he's saying in this is he's saying, listen, God will fulfill his word in his way and his timing. So when we have faith in God's sovereignty, what we're trusting in is that God will fulfill his word in his way and his timing. It's saying it's not my job to force the results I want, but I'm going to trust what God has said and I'm going to allow him to fulfill his word in his way and in his timing. Notice that David doesn't give a specific here. He doesn't say he's going to strike him. He says, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The equivalent of that is this. Something will happen to him along the road. Maybe he'll get ill. Maybe he'll be hit by a chariot. <laughs> and die. Or his day will come. Maybe he'll die of old age. Maybe he'll die of illness. Or maybe he'll die in battle. I don't know how it's going to happen but God's going to do it, and God's going to do it in his time. Now, what's interesting about that is, is David doesn't put a time frame on it. He just trusts that God's going to do it. Now, the beauty of that is when we actually break that apart, what David's sharing there in that moment is not all that profound, because what David's sharing is, Saul's going to die and it's not up to me to make it happen. Isn't that true of all of us? Saul's going to die and it's not up to me to make it happen. What I do know is, is that God is going to do it in his timing and his way and it doesn't matter. My call is to simply obey him and trust that he is going to do it. And when that occurs... This problem will go away. So God will fulfill his word in his way and his timing. And so if we're going to have faith in God's sovereignty, we have to trust that God will fulfill his word in his way and in his timing. I think sometimes we talk about this word of sovereignty out kind of over as an overarching banner. And we don't really know what it means what does it merely mean to trust that God is the ruler over all? 
Well, it begins with trusting that he will fulfill his word in his way and in his timing. Trusting in God's sovereignty is not some passive experience where we just let things happen to us. But it's an active relationship where we are trusting in God. We are listening to his word. We're responding to him and we are trusting that he is making it happen, not us. Ezekiel 12.25 adds, For I am the Lord, I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Now listen to this. A great word of wisdom from Proverbs 14.12. It's a passage that some of us are familiar with, and it says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Is that not a wonderful example of Abishai there? That literally, in this case, it would lead to Saul's death. It's so easy in our culture and our world to adopt the standards and the justice of the world rather than the merciful love and merciful justice of God to trust completely that he is sovereign and he will fulfill his word in his way and in his timing. The second thing that we see here, that faith in God's sovereignty trusts, is that God is the protector over his anointed. God is the protector over his anointed. We're told, it says here, and David said to Abner, why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? Now picture this for a moment. David went in and took the spear and the sword from Saul that were at his head, the warrior who was ready for battle that was sleeping, gets up, takes that stuff, goes out, and it says that he went across a great distance. I was trying to think of this. If you had a sibling, a brother or a sister, and you took something that you knew that you weren't supposed to take, you create distance, do you not? Like you get as far away as you possibly can before you dangle it in front of them. Especially if they're bigger, right? You stand back and there's this subtle stepping back, stepping back, and you are totally calculated, are you not? It's just waiting, waiting. Now I've got enough space, look what I got. Look what I got, right? So that you have enough space to get tail and run, right? You kind of have this picture with David and Abner. I mean, and Abishai, they're like, we got to have some deep space between us on this one. When we show him his sword and we show him his jar of water, the chances are he's not going to be a happy man, right? And so they create this space, and it says that they shout across this great space, And notice what he does. And some have said here that David is mocking Abner. I don't think that's actually what David's doing. I think what David is actually doing is making it very clear that Abner is not as strong as he thinks he is. That Abner cannot battle the Lord and win. See, he says, then Abner answered, who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? The very first thing he does is reminds him of his position before God. Then it says, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Then he goes on and he says, Now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And you can picture this, that David is holding those things up. 
You see, what he's reminding Abner here is that God is the protector over his anointed. Man is not the protector of God's anointed. 2 Corinthians 2, 21 through 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, when we come to Jesus, when we repent and believe on Jesus, we receive his spirit. God anoints us with his spirit. All of us who have repented and believed on Jesus have been anointed with his spirit for his work. And the truth is, is that God is the only protector. He is the protector over his anointed. When he has called you to it, when he has called you to a work, he is your protector. 1 John 2, 26-27 continues, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Listen to this. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you, that is the Holy Spirit, about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. We're to abide in Christ because Christ has anointed us with his spirit. See, when God has called us into relationships, even when they're tough, even when they're difficult, even when they feel like they're enemies in front of us, our faith is that God is our protector because he protects his anointed. So when we have faith in God's sovereignty, what we're saying is we're trusting that he is our protector. We no longer step back and begin trying to feverishly defend ourselves. But we let God be the one who protects and vindicates. David is pointing out to Abner that no matter how many weapons that Abner has and no matter how much skill he has, he cannot protect the king. The only way that the king is protected is protected by God. As followers of Christ, we have to remember that, that God is our protector, and he is the protector over his anointed. It's easy sometimes to feel like we have to chase this and do this for God. And we lose sight. We lose sight that God is the one who protects his anointed. So the first thing that we're trusting in then is that God will fulfill his will or his word in his way and in his timing. Secondly, we're trusting that God is the protector over his anointed. And third, we're trusting that God will reward righteousness and faithfulness. Notice what David says. He says, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? And then we go to verse 23. It says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Why did David not put his hand against the Lord's anointed? Because he trusted that God would reward his righteousness and faithfulness. If we don't believe that God will reward our righteousness and faithfulness, if we don't believe in his character to, to fulfill his promises, if we don't believe that he is the protector, we're certainly not going to believe that he will reward our righteousness and faithfulness. And because God is the rewarder of righteous and faithfulness, I can step back and go, gosh, my flesh so desperately wants to take care of this in my own way. But Lord, if I live this out righteously, 
you will reward it. There will be a blessing in that. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. And I want to encourage you to write that scripture down. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We respond as if we are responding to God, not to men. We respond as if we are responding to God, not to men. How would I respond to the Lord? Respond to the Lord in righteousness. God wants us to respond in righteousness and faithfulness as well towards others. So this faith in God's sovereignty then, in this picture, because God rewards righteousness and faithfulness, demands a couple things for us to walk in righteousness and faithfulness in the midst of difficult circumstances, conflict with others, or when facing our enemies. And the first is this. To consider if sin is present in our lives or if spiritual warfare is at work. We need to humbly consider if sin is present in our lives or if spiritual warfare is at work. Verse 19 says, Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the Lord. What he's saying here is this. David goes humbly and he says, listen, I'm not so far removed to say that I'm saying this could all be just you being a bad guy. Maybe God is exposing something in me. I don't believe that to be true, but I'm willing to consider it. And if it is, may an offering be provided. When we face trials, it's very easy to become self-righteous especially when we believe we're right. The question is, have we considered whether this trial is coming because of sin in our life or have we determined that it's because of spiritual warfare that may be at work? Scripture tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principality. And too often we look at that and we run to that and we cling to that without ever looking at what God is looking to do in our own lives. We have this picture in our community of fire that has ravaged different sections for the last four years, has it not? Lake County, Mendocino County, Sonoma County. It's so easy to immediately run to this place of saying, what is God doing? Is he bringing some sort of judgment? We need to pray against it. Actually, what we need to pray is, God, what are you revealing to us? Maybe it's his judgment. But fire has been used throughout Scripture to do more than just show God's judgment. Fire in Scripture is often used to refine even the believer. And as we think about this in our own lives, we need to honestly be assessing, are you refining us, Lord, through this? Is there something in my life that you're looking to, to move out, to push out, to, to wipe away? It's important that we consider this. Sovereignty is not just sitting back and passively watching life happen to us. Having faith in the sovereignty of God is an active process. It's trusting, but it's working in Him, trusting in Him, aligning ourselves with Him. And so it starts with us considering if sin is present in our lives or if spiritual warfare is at work. And truthfully, often it's both. Often it's both. 
I've often wondered if there was ever a time when as followers of Christ, we can walk through a trial and not learn anything. God is always working to refine within us. And I would say more often than not, given James and the fact that we are to consider it joy when we face trials, that all trials, whether they're a part of God's judgment and discipline or whether they are just a part of life and attempts to be discouraging, all trials are for the purpose of refining. All trials are for the purpose of perfecting. And so even the last two weeks, my hope and my prayer is that we've slowed down enough to actually reflect on that. Have we slowed down to say, God, what are you revealing in my own life? What are you revealing about you to me? I had some friends that put pictures up of the, the fire in Windsor. I don't know if you've seen these yet that have come up to the neighborhoods. They're, they're literally 10 feet, 12 feet from the homes. I mean, when you looked at the news media, they didn't quite do it justice, but there's an aerial photo that shows it all around. And, and I wondered, I'm sitting back going, how in the world they stop that kind of thing? I mean, you have 100 firefighters. It doesn't seem like there's enough hose power to stop that. But it was so clear. God, you are over all things. You have power over all things. And these things that, seem, that we seem so powerless to, you are powerful over in abundance. The second thing that it demands us to do is to lovingly confront sin, to confront sin and the consequences directly. The same way that we saw a few weeks ago with the peacemakers, David here does confront sin, both sin in his own life if needed, and he deals with the sin there at its work within Saul. But he does it through the recognition of consequences. David does not come into this and say, hey, guess what? Here's what's going to happen to you, Saul. But rather he comes in and says, listen, this action, this sin, is actually preventing me from being in the presence of my inheritance. That's the effect of sin in our life. It is affecting our ability to be in the presence of God. We need to deal with sin in our own life, but then when we're in conflict, it's okay to address sin and say, this is how it's affecting us. I remember years ago having to discipline a friend and a leader in Christ's church, and some of you were here for that. The appeal wasn't just to the sin but the appeal was to the consequence of that sin. The loss of relationship. The brokenness that comes in, 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 in a fellowship as a result of unrepentant sin. The blight to the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus. It's okay when we're in the midst of trial to be able to say, here's the consequences of this. In fact, David says that we should, in essence, gives us an example of expressing it to Saul. Saying, here are the consequences of the sin. And so we do that lovingly. He says to David here, excuse me, to Saul, he says, let not my blood fall the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea. Here's what he's saying. 
Saul, am I so worth it to you that you brought 3,000 men out to kill me? One person? He actually is exposing the ridiculousness of Saul. The misguided principle, the misguided focus, the deception that's at work within his life. And then finally what we see here in verse 21 through 22 is that David uses wisdom. And so when we have faith in God's sovereignty, it demands us to to go and consider our own sin. It, it, It demands that we confront sin and the consequences of that sin, and it demands that we use wisdom. Resting in God's sovereignty is not an excuse to be careless or reckless. Notice what David does here. Saul says, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolish and have made a great mistake. And then David answered, and he said, here is the spear, O king, let one of the young men come over and take it. Now that word that actually gets missed, I think, when we read that passage is that Saul says to David, return. That David has heard this story before when Saul seemingly repented in chapter 24 and said, I will not harm you. And David's going, I have seen this story, not a chance. He doesn't even offer a, I'm not returning. He just says simply, here's your sword and spears, come and get it. Right? Send one over. He doesn't just walk blindly. He doesn't just lack discernment and throw his discernment aside and say, guess what? It's all in the sovereignty of God. He uses wisdom. God calls us to use wisdom as we rest in his sovereignty. And his sovereignty demands it. Notice Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What he's saying there is use wisdom and be righteous. Use wisdom and be righteous. See, sovereignty, trusting in his sovereignty, requires that we walk with him. It's not that we sit back passively. So then this fourth thing that we trust in that we see here, and I think this is the final piece that David displays, and it's the fact that God is the loving source of our deliverance. God is the loving source of our deliverance. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. David pleads with the Lord that his life be precious in the sight of God. I think it's easy at times when we're trusting in God's sovereignty to wonder what the Lord really feels about us. And I want us just to hear this from Psalm 139. I want us to take this in and to really grab what it is that God is saying about our lives and does he consider our lives to be precious. This is what he says. For you were formed in my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Wow. Ever wondered if God loves you? He formed and made you intricately. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not a mistake. 
And his purpose for your life is not a mistake. And this trial is not a mistake. Psalm 140, David continues, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. Where does David begin to pray? He responds by going to a place of saying, God, I need you to deliver me. If God is the loving source of our deliverance, then we need to be going to that well. We need to be praying The sovereignty of God does not mean we are to be prayerless. In fact, it means that we should be going to him more because of who he is and who we were made in his image. Because our lives are precious before him. You see, God's ultimate deliverance of man from sin actually affirms his unique love for us. And we were once unworthy of him, but now we've been made worthy through the work of Christ. Romans 5, 2 through 6 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean? It means that we were once unworthy, but through Jesus we have been made worthy. And God sees your life as precious, and he is the loving source of your deliverance through Jesus. What does it mean to trust or to have faith in God's sovereignty? It means that you are trusting that God will fulfill his word in his way and timing, that he is the protector of his anointed, that he will reward righteousness and faithfulness, and that he is the loving source of our deliverance. Brian Bell asked this one question and then answer it. And I think it's true for each of us that we might know this in the midst of every trial we face and every difficult circumstance. And he asks and answers it this way. He says, what is my worth? Well, worth is what one is willing to pay for you. I am worth the death of God's only son. That's it. I have been made worthy through Christ We have been made worthy through Christ, and may we rest and have faith in the sovereignty of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you explain to us what it really means to have faith in your sovereignty. May we be a people who actively pursue faith that is resting in your sovereignty. May we be a people who are trusting you completely and setting our own desires aside for your sake. May we be a righteous bride to you. And may your love overwhelm us, knowing that we have been made worthy through your Son, and no longer are we separated from a holy and righteous God, but we are now inheritance. We now are part of your kingdom, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.